Welcome to the Bluff First Podcast. Join us as we journey together through the book of 1 Peter in our current series entitled Living Hope. We pray that this message will encourage and enrich your life. For more information, please visit us on the web at bluffhurst.com. My prayer this morning, as you turn to surprise, 1 Peter chapter 1. We've been there. We've been there about a month or two. Um, But 1 Peter chapter 1, as you find that in your Bible or on your phone or whatever, here's my prayer this morning that you, um, maybe you're here and you've been on the fence about this faith thing, this church stuff, this Christianity. My prayer is that this message would help you see just how precious and valuable you are to God and that he would be worth giving your life to. Now, if you're here and you're like, man, I've done that already. I've been serving Jesus 20 years. The good news is we are prone to wander and we need a reminder all the time of just what it costs Jesus for us to come to know him. And I hope it encourages you as well. Think about the ways that we typically find value in ourselves. How do we find value in ourselves? Some of us, we get up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we decide based on how our hair cooperates that day or whatever, whether or not a pimple popped up overnight or whatever, we decide how good of a day it's going to be. It's very easy to look in the mirror and decide that you're really valuable, you're really precious, or not, based on what you see. I'm grateful my daughter is three, three and a half now, and I'm grateful that she has not yet heard the lie that she's not beautiful. And so she looks in the mirror, and she still likes what she sees, and she's still happy, and yet I know one day that's going to sneak in as she looks around and compares herself and everything else. It's so easy to just judge ourselves and give ourselves value based on outward appearance. Maybe you look in the bank account, or you look in the garage, or you you look at the house at the, at, in the neighborhood that you're in, and you find your value in material things or in possessions or in wealth or whatever. Maybe uh, you, to, to, to make it maybe like even more common ground, maybe you find your worth, your value in your accomplishments, whether it's your performance at work or your uh, scholastic or academic or uh, athletic accomplishments, whatever, the trophy case, so to speak, it's so easy for us to decide we're worth it, we're worth something, we're valuable based on what we look and what we have and what we accomplish, right? How many guys would admit that that's you? It's very easy to judge yourself based on that. Now, here's the problem. Because of this, we are always looking at other people to see how we stack up, how we compare, right? And so we're always evaluating everybody else to see where we stack up. And then in turn, we wind up deciding other people's value as well based on those things. Oh, they're really attractive. I want to know what they have to say. Oh, they've got a nice place. They've got, they got a boat. Anybody like you want a friend with a boat and a friend with a pool? My friends with a pool sold their house and moved into an RV. Come on, Nate and Amy. What are you doing to me? Right? So I'm looking for a new friend with a pool. Um, but it's very easy to find value in people based on the stuff, the outward stuff that they have, the stuff that they can give us. There was a website, I do not recommend it, but there was a website that was popular when I was in middle school and high school called hotornot.com. Anybody remember hotornot.com? It's the dumbest website of all time. You literally just saw a picture of someone and like an Olympic judge, 10, <laughs> 7, 5, right? I don't know who would make a profile on there except 16-year-old me. So I... <laughs> Um, I made it as an experiment, you know, just for laughs. 
And you get to put a description. I wanted affirmation. I, you get to put a description in there. Nobody reads the description. Nobody's judging your personality. They're just looking at your picture and going, yep, nope, yep, nope. And so I remember my description, and I'm, listen, we come here mainly for two things, right? To lift up Jesus and make fun of me. So um, I remember, um, conveniently, I do not remember my score, but I do remember a few things in my description. Um, this will tell you how long ago it was. In my description, I had single, thin, <laughs> it's been a minute. And then, this is really humiliating, but I'm just going to tell you anyway, I don't know why this is in there. I think I thought it would be a selling point that some young lady would, would think, yes, this is my dream man. I put acting. Now, <laughs> my school didn't even have theater, okay? My youth group had a drama team, and it was all girls and me, so I was always Jesus. And so, um, apparently, I'm an actor. But anyway, <laughs> how many are grateful God does not assign our value based on our hotornot.com score? He has a different way of assigning value to us. He looks at us through a different lens. First Peter chapter 1, we're going to go through four verses today, verses 18 through 21. Verse 18, reading from the English Standard Version, says, Knowing that you were ransomed, everybody say ransomed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. These four verses detail for us, and if that was way too fast for you, don't worry about it. I already had my coffee, but we're going to go back to those verses, okay, a little bit slower. These verses detail for us how God values us and how he backed up that assessment of our value with his actions. You could consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, a receipt, if you will, reminding us what he paid for us, what we cost. You know, I'm kind of a, a, of a marketing guy. I like to think about branding and designs. I like to design t-shirts and stuff like that. And one of my favorite uh, billboard campaigns I've ever seen, maybe you've seen this one. It's brilliant marketing. They say so much in just four words. Have you seen the billboards that say, we buy ugly houses? You seen anybody seen this? No, you're like, no, I don't see that when I'm driving. I'm too busy looking at my phone, right? Um, <laughs> But there's these billboards, and they communicate so much. Like, if you've got a house, and you want to sell it, and you're thinking, who wants to buy this house? It's a, it's a mess. These guys want to buy your house. They don't care. They buy ugly houses, right? They fix them up. They put them back on the market. They make the neighborhood look nice. And, and listen, I'm here this morning to let you know God has been in that business a lot longer than these guys. He buys ugly houses. That's his plan. He finds a broken life, a broken person. And sometimes there's some, some gutting that has to be done. There's some stuff that has to go. And there's some new things that have to come in. And there's renovation that's done. But he loves to find a broken life, pay for it, fix it up, and put it back out there. Put it to good use. So this morning, we're going to look at four things from those four verses. And the first thing, we need to acknowledge the broken part, okay? Um, let's talk about our problem. Our problem is in verse 18. It says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. 
And you don't use futile in your everyday language, but you probably know what it means. It's, it's, it's aimless, it's pointless, it's not gonna end well. We were ransomed from that. How many know that to be ransomed from something, you have to be captive to something, right? I can't just get up here this morning and say, I want you to give me $1,000 for Sharon, right? And you're like, well, he's free, he doesn't need anything. And I'm like, nope, I want $1,000 or you can't talk to him. You're like, I'm gonna talk to him. Right? I've got to hold him captive. I've got to capture him somehow in order to demand a ransom. And so we got to understand this morning, if we were ransomed, that means we were captive. What were we captive to? Peter tells us our futile ways inherited from our forefathers. That's our problem. We've talked about this a lot in this series, the way we lived before Jesus, right? Last week, we talked about new living in this same old world. You and I had an old way of living. We had an old way of thinking. Whether we grew up far from God or grew up in church, we needed Jesus to come in and give us a new heart and new thinking. And so we have this problem that we're captive to this old way of living. Uh, Eugene Peterson's paraphrase of the scriptures, the Message Bible says, it cost God plenty to get you out of that dead end, empty-headed life you grew up in. Anybody else grow up with dead-end thinking? Anybody else grow up or, or living your life as a young adult or an adult headed towards nowhere and nothing before you met Jesus? And listen, again, you can grow up in church with Christian parents and be aimlessly lost. You can sit here Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and lay in bed at night with an empty life, an unsatisfied soul. There are certain things that even money can't fix. Even the best things money can buy can't fix. We've seen celebrities, right, with, with all kinds of, uh, of wealth and possessions and, and, and connections harm themselves, take their own lives, hurt other people, right? Jesus said it in Mark chapter 8. What does it profit a man, verse 36, to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, there's some things that money just, just can't buy. And so we've got to be ransomed from this old, futile way of living and thinking. Maybe you're here this morning, and you've got some things you've inherited from your family. You've, uh, I love it. I inherited my dad's belly, but not his awesome beard. Isn't that great? Isn't that a great deal? I'm like, couldn't it have been the other way around? Couldn't I just have abs and a ZZ Top beard? That would be, that would be great, right? But I am a good actor, so... Um, <laughs> But some of us, we received, you know, our parents lived reckless lives, foolish lives. They spent money on bad things. They had addictions, and, and we've inherited some of that. Some of us, our family was blue-collar American family, you know, but, but they made everything about accomplishment and reputation and not love. And so you live feeling like you're never good enough. Some of us receive religious tradition and rule following, and so you come to God, and it's all about rules and performance and all of this stuff. All of us inherited something from our family. The problem is it doesn't matter what family you come from, you're born with a sin nature, you live a sinful life, and you have no ability to save yourself. You have no ability to pay that ransom for yourself. Romans says the wages of sin, what does sin cost? Where does sin lead? The wages of sin is death, and all have sinned. That's a problem, that's our problem. Every single one of us is a sinner. Every single sinner, that sin leads them to death, they're in a place of needing rescue, and they can't save themselves. That's our problem. But thank God, he made other arrangements. He had a different kind of plan. Look at verse 18 and 19 again as we look at our price. It says, you were ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of 
Christ. That word ransomed, if, you looked at, if you're looking at it in an NIV or a King James Bible, it might say redeemed instead. Ransomed, redeemed. And this is a term that's used a couple of different ways. In the first century, um, there were people that would be slaves because of debts they had and different things like that. And so they would serve someone to pay off their debt. There was no credit card to put that debt on. And so we saw that in the first century, you could set a slave free by paying a certain price for them. Whatever their debt was, there was a certain price that you could purchase their freedom also, uh, the Greeks, they had the same kind of system, but it wasn't just for um, you know, debtor slaves. It was also for prisoners of war. And so you would capture a land or whatever. You have these prisoners of war, but they could be released. They could be set free based on a certain payment. In both cases, somebody had to pay the price. To be ransomed, to be redeemed, someone has to pay the price. And there is a price If someone ransoms you, if someone pays for you, that tells you that there's some value there. There must be something valuable for someone to pay for. In other words, the old house is worth saving, right? We buy ugly houses not because we we want them to stay that way, but because there's some value there. You and I have value to God. We have value to God. You may look in the mirror, you may look at the bank account and say, I feel worthless But you have so much, you have infinite value to God. The most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, says, For God so loved the world. And he wasn't talking about the clouds and the trees and current river, okay? He was talking about you and me. God so loved the world that he gave the most precious thing he could give. He gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have everlasting, eternal life. That's so hard to wrap my brain around. Anybody else, like you come to church and you know God loves you, you know God is love, you sing about it, but it's just hard to wrap your mind, it's hard to feel loved by God. It's hard to wake up and just like, yes, God loves me, and to believe it in your heart of hearts. I think it's difficult to believe because it's so different. It's so foreign to us. It's so strange. You know, we love our kids and we love people that are in our family and blood related or whatever. We love people that way. But then most other people that we love, we love because they make us laugh. We love because they, uh, pay, they sign our check. We love because we got a lot of history with them, whatever. There's something that they do that makes them lovable to us. And so to have a God with perfect love, that type of love is, is almost too good to be true. It's almost too good to believe. I went this week to uh, buy my wife a little car wash package thing, and I'm filling out the paperwork, and there's like the express package, and it's $20 a month or whatever. Then there's the express plus package, right, for the big timers like me. And, <laughs> and instead of being 20 a month, I'm expecting it to be 25 or 30. It's got more features. It says 15 And I was like, "Um, excuse me, sir, there's a typo here. The better package is $5 less. And he said, yeah, that's a a promotion we're running right now. It's usually 30 bucks, it's 15 bucks. And I was like, why would anyone in the world buy the $20 package then? Like, why is this even an option? Um, But I I had to ask two or three times, like, this this just seems too good to be true. But God's love is that way. It, It sounds almost too good to be true because it's so different than ours. You know, we love people, and and sometimes there's people we love, and then we stop loving them, right? We say we fell out of love, or we grew apart, or that relationship just wasn't able, that friendship wasn't able to be mended. God doesn't love that way. He doesn't love that way at all. His love isn't temporary like ours. You know, my daughter um, is three and a half, and she loves 
claw machines. Let me rephrase that. My daughter's three and a half, and I love claw machines, okay? Because claw machines let me do two things that I love. They let me give my daughter something, which I just love to give her stuff. Gifts are one of my love languages, okay? I love to give her stuff. And then secondly, I love to prove how awesome I am, okay? I love, like, I, I think I'm, I'm winning every time. And in her few years of living, I've probably got 20-plus stuffed animals out of these claw machines. And you know what? The thing is, she loves them with all of her heart for about three days, and then she's over it, right? And she's on to the next toy or the next stuffed animal that I waste money on and, and, and whatever. But God's love isn't like that. It's not temporary. It's not based on some scale. It's not based on what we can give him. It's not, it's not like, well, you better find a way to be valuable. You better be attractive. You better be, you better be outgoing. You better be funny. You better be wealthy. God's love is indiscriminate and unconditional. You and I love people oftentimes based on how lovable they are. We love things based on the, the object, right? Like how lovable is that thing or that person? But God's love is not based on us, the object. God's love is based on him, the subject. His love is perfect because he is perfect. Let me say it this way. God doesn't love us because we are valuable. We are valuable because God loves us. God didn't look at us and go, oh man, I could really use them. You know, we really need a point guard, I don't know how I'm going to get my kingdom work done without them. I I need this person. They've got such great skill. They've got such great potential. No, he doesn't love us based on what we can do for him. We're, We're not, he doesn't go, oh, you're valuable. I want you. He says, no, I love you. You're mine. I made you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And that's what makes us valuable is his love, not, not our lovability. There was a, um, tourist, American, uh, tourist in Paris. I've never been to Paris. Sounds fancy. And she went to Paris and she bought, uh, she went into like a little antique shop and she bought a little trinket bracelet, you know, 20, 30 bucks, whatever. And so it had some amber in it, some different stones, whatever. And so she went to fly home and customs going through her stuff and they asked for a pretty hefty tax on this bracelet. And so she thought about saying, well, never mind, I don't want the bracelet. And then she thought, well, maybe it's worth something if they're trying to charge me for it. So she, she paid the tax and she got home and she went to a jeweler for appraisal. And the guy looked it over and he said, ma'am, would you be interested in selling this bracelet? And she's like, well, I don't know. Like everything has a price, right? What are you thinking? And she's thinking, you know, I gave 20, 30 bucks for it. Maybe I'll make $500. And he said, well, I would like to offer you $25,000 for this bracelet. And she's like, uh, I don't think I want to sell it. And so she went somewhere else, and she got it appraised. And this next guy offered her 35000 10000 more. And she's like, okay, what is the deal? So she tries to find a jeweler who will actually tell her what's going on and why this thing is so valuable. And so she goes to a family friend or whatever who knows a jeweler, and he goes, hey, um, here's the deal. And he pulls out the magnifying glass, and he lets her look at the inscription. It's not even, not even really visible to the naked eye. And written on the inside of the bracelet said this, to Josephine from Napoleon Bonaparte. Oh, (laughs) that's why this is worth so much. You see, it wasn't valuable because of the material it was made out of. It wasn't valuable because she bought it in Paris. It wasn't valuable because of the era that it came from. It wasn't even valuable because it was given to Josephine. It was valuable because it was given by Napoleon. The value came from the subject, not the object. The value came from the giver. It was worth something because of who gave it. 
Your value comes from the fact that you are loved by God. You were made in his image out of everything in the world that takes our breath away. We look at the Grand Canyon. We look at some of these crazy creatures in the ocean and we go, wow, God's so amazing. But there's one thing that he looks at that, makes, that takes his breath away. There's one thing that he looks at and goes, that's the best thing I've ever made. And it's you. Like, can you wrap your head around that? I don't have a sermon. I don't have a t-shirt I designed. I don't have a pair of shoes that I, I, I like to wear that impressed me quite like looking at my daughter does. Nothing's more valuable to me. And that's how God looks at you. You're valuable. You're worth more than Bitcoin to him. That's a big deal. And he proves it. He proves it in what he paid for you. We see our price. Let's look at, let's look at our payment. You were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, not a, not a Napoleon bracelet, but with the precious blood of Christ. We got people with Tupperware containers at the gas station, y'all, Ziploc bags, trying to fill up gas in a trash bag, right? Because gas is so precious right now. It's skyrocketing, we gotta fill up. And yet God has paid for us with the most rare, precious resource of all time, the blood of his one and only son. You can't put a price on that. It's, it's invaluable. It's priceless. Today, um, Brooke and I celebrate 12 years. Today's our 12-year anniversary. I don't know if you should applaud me for pulling that off or... A, Applaud her for putting up with me, but 12 years ago, I stood right here on this stage, we got married here, and I waited as she walked down the aisle, and I liked it, and I put a ring on it, okay? <laughs> and, and we said our I do's and all of that, but you know, um, I bought the ring by myself. I went to the jeweler, I bought the ring. Some of you guys were brave enough to take your fiance with you ring shopping. I did not make that mistake. I mean choice. I did not make that choice. Because here's the thing. When you walk in the jeweler, you're looking around, you're looking at everything. You know what they ask you? They say, what are you looking to spend? What's your price range? What's she worth to you, pal? That's what they ask you. And by myself, I, I mean, I picked out a ring. It cost a lot of money to me. I saved up for it. But if she had been there, I'd been like, give her the whole store. I don't like, I don't, she's, you know, my wife's actually pretty cheap. I probably would have saved some money if she had been there. But um, what do you want to spend? What's it, what's it worth? How, what's the price? What's your, what's your limit, right? Do you realize you have a price? You have a set price. You cost everything. The creator of the world looked at you and said, you're worth my son's blood, his life. God was willing to pay it. Jesus was willing to endure it. And what do we have to do? We have to receive it. We have to believe it. Vance Havner said, salvation is free, but it is not cheap. It costs Jesus everything. Why is his blood so precious? It says the precious blood. We weren't bought with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Why is it so precious? Well, if you're a parent, 
If you're a parent, you could understand, man, how much would you have to love something to give up your child for it? That's a pretty big deal. But also, Jesus' blood was precious because he was the only person who never sinned. Verse uh, 19 says, like a, like, a, like a lamb without blemish or spot. I love how Pastor Skip Heitzig breaks down this part of the passage. He says, you know, a blemish is inherent. You're born with it. A spot is acquired like a bruise. And Jesus was without spot or blemish. He was not born in sin, and he never committed a sin. And he laid out the progression of how these spotless, blemishless lambs were used throughout the Bible, throughout human history, as substitutes and payments for sin. They were redemption animals, ransom animals. Adam and Eve in the garden did the one thing God told them not to do, and they sinned. And after they hid from God and God found them and talked with them, the Bible says that he took skin of animals and made clothing for them to cover their nakedness with. And most scholars believe it was, it was lambskin, it was soft, it was warm. So in that time, one animal, one lamb, might cover the sins of one person. At the Passover, in the exodus of Egypt, they took the blood of a spotless lamb without blemish, and they covered the doorposts of their homes for Passover. And so in that case, one lamb was enough to cover the sins of one family, Later on, you read the Bible, the Day of Atonement, the priests would come and take the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, and one lamb was sufficient to cover the sins temporarily for a whole country, one lamb, one nation. But what do we hear John the Baptist say as he stands in the Jordan River and his cousin Jesus walks down the hill? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One Lamb, everyone's sin, permanent. No more Day of Atonement, no more Passover ritual, no, no more sacrificing anything. Jesus was the one-time sacrifice for you and for me. His blood is so precious. It's the only antidote to a virus that every single one of us have. And listen, there's not three or four different versions. There's not like, oh, which one are you going to get? You know, you're going to go Pfizer, you're going to go, listen, there's one antidote. There's one opportunity to deal with sin, and it's Jesus' blood. You say, that sounds pretty gruesome, pastor, like blood. Do I really want to deal with blood and talk about blood? Why do I need blood? That sounds so gross. But listen, you, <laughs> you will only see blood as gross if if you don't see your sin as gross. But if you see your sin for the gross reality that it is, the blood of Jesus Christ becomes precious to you because it can wash away your sin. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So this, this relationship with God, it changes our relationships with each other too. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from some sin, no. <laughs> cleanses us from most sin. No. Cleanses us from all sin. You know what I used to think? I used to think that Jesus forgave me when I came and I repented. He forgave me of all my sins in the past. 
and he forgave me of all the sins that I had managed to wrestle out of my life. But I still walked around feeling very condemned by the habits I had yet to kick, by the sins I was still committing, by the thoughts I had day in and day out, and the things that I would do or say. I still felt very condemned. But this verse reminds us that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. All sin. It may not be seeker-friendly. It may not be popular to talk about blood, but there's nothing else that can save us. I would do you a great disservice to avoid talking about the blood of Jesus. It's critical that we understand that is our only access to God. That is our only hope in life. That is our only shot at eternity with God is that we stand before him as sinners, but not just sinners, cleansed sinners washed in the blood of Jesus Christ. We have to have that. We have to. Verse 20 says about this plan, this plan A, to give Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin, that he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Listen, you were not an afterthought. God did not create the world and everything was good and he's like, all right, I'm done. And then, oh, what happened? They messed it up. What am I gonna do? Let's try, uh, let's try Passover. Let's try atonement. That's not working. They keep sinning. What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? What are we gonna do? Jesus, you wanna try to do something? This is not a backup plan. Before the foundation of the world, this was the plan, but it happened now for you, for the sake of, of you. And you know what? You being here right now is part of that plan. We read it this morning. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word about Jesus Christ, hearing the gospel. That's your, that's your opportunity this morning. That's your invitation to look past all the silly stuff I say and to hear the word of God say to you, my blood can wash you white as snow. You can have relationship with me. I paid for you. You're valuable to me. As Pastor Nate joins me, Let's look quickly at the last part. How do we respond to all this? Our problem, our price, our payment. Let's look at our part. Verse 21. We, through him, are believers in God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory so that our faith and our hope are in God. What's our part in all of this? Jesus gave everything, spilled his blood, went to a cross, was spit on and cursed and mocked and didn't, didn't call on angels to bring him down, didn't curse anyone, prayed for his accusers and his attackers. What's our response? Faith. Believing. That might sound simple. You go, well, I believe in God, but it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little trickier than maybe it sounds. It's simple, but it's not just, yeah, I believe. James says the demons believe in God. It takes more than just believing in the man upstairs to, to be washed by this blood. You can't work for it. You can't pay for it. You can't inherit it. Listen, some people try to clean up their act before they come to God or come to church or whatever. <laughs> you might as well stop wasting your time because even at your best effort, you could not clean up your life enough to be good enough for God. He catches fish and he cleans them. He doesn't catch clean fish, all right? None of us go out and fish and reel in a nice breaded fried piece of catfish, all right? You catch them, you clean them, you do all that. 
God does the work. So you say, I believe. Do you really believe? Do you trust in him? There was a, I'll say one last thing here. There was a famous entertainer in the 1800s. He went by the name Blondin. Death-defying acts. He, he was a tightrope walker. He walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope. No net, you know, just full send. <laughs> and in June of 1859, he did his first walk. 100,000 people gathered to watch. He did it. I'm thinking if I did that the rest of my life, I'm like, I walked across it. I got a picture. I'm done. He kept doing it. Before he died, he crossed Niagara Falls some 300 times on a tightrope. And if you're thinking, like, how many times can you do it until everybody saw it? Why are you going to keep doing it? Well, you know, I guess people got bored watching a man walk on a piece of string across Niagara Falls. So he kept adding twists and variations to make it more impressive. So he sets out one day and he decides he's going to walk across it blindfolded. Then he says... That was impressive and all, but what if I took a wheelbarrow across? (laughs) He, this is, you can look look him up, this is real. He walked across Niagara Falls on a tightrope on stilts. I couldn't stand still for 10 seconds on stilts. Walked across. My favorite one, like he's just showing off at this point, right? He walks across, he sits down in the middle. He pulls some stuff out, cooks an omelet, and eats an omelet on, on a rope, and then finishes walking across Niagara Falls. I mean, people at this point are like, this guy is amazing. Like, he's Superman. He can do anything. They believed he could do anything, and they came to see it. But he came out with a new twist. He's like, all right, guys, I am going to walk across Niagara Falls with a man on my shoulders. And everyone's like, yeah, you can do it. You're the best. Who wants to volunteer? Listen, you don't have to do anything. If I, if I lean left, you lean left. If I lean right, sway right. You sway right. Just go with me. There's only one person who knows what they're doing up here. It's me. You just be chill and go with it. Who wants to volunteer? Ooh. It's a whole different thing, isn't it? To think, yeah, you can do it, and to climb on his shoulders. That's what we're talking about when we talk about faith. It's not just, yeah, I believe in God. He's up there. It's putting your faith in him and on him, trusting him fully, surrendering your life to him, saying, yes, you forgive me of my sin. You be my savior. You be my Lord. Your word is authority in my life. If I disagree with it, I'm going to change my mind or figure out what it's supposed to really say. I'm going to get into that a little bit. I believe. How? Man, how do you do that? That's scary. Well, we do it because we trust him, and we trust him because he gave everything for us. Whether you're here this morning, you think you're pretty, you think you're handsome, you think you're ugly, you think you're valuable, you think you're not valuable, you think you're wealthy, you're a a success, you're a failure. Listen, you are worth everything to him. There is no sin that is too great, no life that is too evil, uh, evil, no mistake that is too big, no one that is too good. They don't need saving. We all need redeemed. And religion can't do it, church can't do it, tradition, money, good looks, acting skills, None of it can save you. Only the blood. God, this morning I pray for anyone that has not experienced your salvation. They've heard about it. 
They've sung it, but it hasn't clicked. They haven't gotten it. They've trusted their goodness. They've trusted their, their church going. They've trusted that they have more time. I pray that today, Lord, you would buy that old house and restore it and change it from the inside out. In your son's precious name, I pray, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For questions, prayer requests, and more information, please visit us on the web at blowthirst.com.